This episode is sponsored by yet another great company that I use and endorse, and that is Bubs Naturals. Now, they are offering you guys a discount on your first purchase with them, and I will get to that in a moment, but I really want to tell you the history of Bubs. Bubs was a call sign of Glenn Doherty, one of the courageous Navy SEALs that died in Benghazi, and his best friend, Sean Lake, co-founded Bubs Naturals not only to bring wellness solutions to the community, but to take 10% of the profits and donate to charities in Glenn's name. So I first came across their collagen through Jeff Nichols and had no preconceived notions or biases, but I started to witness in myself, my nails grow faster, my hair get thicker and longer, my skin, I've got very dry skin and it usually cracks in the winter, that has not happened this year. My joints, the aching, the kind of inflammation has definitely subsided. And then what really blew me away was actually my gut health. I saw that improve. And when you think about the gut is 80% of your immune system, that is incredibly pertinent. They have the apple cider vinegar gummies. I also take those. And then the MCT oil in a powder form has allowed me to put creamer back in my coffee after swearing off dairy for years. But when I have this creamer, it's adding energy, it's adding mental focus, so yet it's another supplement. Now, as far as efficacy, they're the only collagen that is 100% NSF for sports certified and Whole30 approved. So as I mentioned, the discount code. They are offering you 20% off a one-time purchase by using the code SHIELD at bubsnaturals.com. And if you want to hear the full story behind Bubs Naturals, and the courage of Glenn Doherty. Listen to my interview with Glenn's best friend and Bub's co-founder, Sean Lake, on episode 558 of the Behind the Shield podcast. This episode is sponsored by 511, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 511 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not I have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, You'll get 15% off, not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. 
And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 594 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Alex Racy. Now, Alex retired as a sergeant major in the U.S. Army's most elite tier one unit, and he is now not only a performance coach, but also a member of the Human Performance Project, Ryan Parrott's incredible year-long study of tactical performance and recovery that I myself will be a part of later this year. So we discuss a host of topics from his journey into the military, training the tactical athlete, rest and recovery, psychology, transition, and so much more. Before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of almost 600 episodes. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Alex Racy. Enjoy. Well, Alex, I just want to start by saying welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast today. Thanks very much. Um, thanks for inviting me, and uh, it's a pleasure to be here. I hope uh, I hope this is worthwhile for you and your listeners. Oh, I'm sure it's going to be. Now, we are connected through an incredibly exciting project that we'll get to later in this discussion. Um, very first kind of opening question, though, where on planet Earth are we finding you today? And it can be roughly. Oh, uh, roughly, I am south of Denver in Colorado of these great United States. Um, we have been in Castle Rock, a little town between... Colorado Springs and Denver for about four years now, actually a little over four years now or right around four years. Let's just say that. Um, so love it. It's uh, it's beautiful. Walk outside in t-shirt weather. And, you know, sometime tomorrow, I think we're supposed to get five inches of snow. So um, I love, uh, I love the Colorado weather and how quickly it changes. But the, the fact that I get to see the sun way more days than not, uh, living out here has been great. Beautiful. Yeah. I went to Colorado with my family. I think it was three, three winters ago now. And it was when they had two or three years, but they had that massive ice freeze that the lowest temperatures they've had in years and years and years. And I rented a two wheel drive car and drove to the ski resorts and by far the coldest weather I've ever been in and the most terrifying driving in 40, then five years of my life. So yeah, <laughs> it's quite a, quite an extreme yeah. environment sometimes. Absolutely. All right. Well, then starting on your chronological timeline. So let's start at the very beginning. Where were you born? And then tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Okay. Yeah. Um, so I was born in Winchester, Virginia, little town right up in the northern tip, about 70, 75 miles west of dc um pretty standard uh born in 1971 so pretty standard uh young kid in the 70s you know high school and 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 middle school and everything and in the 80s kids so lots of uh 
bright colors on my BMX and freestyle bikes at the time. Um, my oddly enough, my mom still lives in the same house that I came home from the hospital to as a baby, uh, back on poor house road in Winchester. The, uh, my, my dad passed away just a few years ago and was, um, you know, obviously they were still together. So standard, uh, upbringing with a two parent family. My dad worked his butt off. My mom worked part-time and raised us four kids. I was the youngest of four kids. Um, two older sisters, Rochelle and Monique and my older brother, Aaron, all um we were all within eight years of each other so i think rochelle's just just not quite eight years older than i am um i am the only one who kind of left that area my my sisters and my brother are all within two and a half hours of where we grew up either in virginia or west virginia so um my dad was a paratrooper in the 50s he was in the 82nd airborne and a unit that i you know didn't even know existed uh, other than him being in it, but he was also stationed over in France with the 18th Airborne Corps. Um, I think he was in for about three years and got out around 1960. Um, went to work, got married, started having babies. So he was, um, he built houses and he also had a factory job with Crown Cork and Seal. So I think initially he was out on the manufacturing floor and then he became part of the um, the management of that company and, and worked in, in the local Crown Cork and Seal facility outside of Winchester for over 40 years, retired from there. So famous for his ability to grow an amazing garden, um, could fix, uh, he could fix anything or, or build anything, you know, it might take him a while, but he'd figure it out and he'd, he'd, uh, he'd always get whatever needed to be built or fixed or manufactured done. My mom was a bookkeeper. Um, you know, she would literally spend two hours uh, finding one penny of error between her bank statement and her checkbook. Uh, that's so she was very, very, very focused on that and just super energetic, uh, high energy woman who needed all that energy because she had to take care of us four kids and we were all pretty wild. So, um, well, I shouldn't say that relatively wild, maybe it's a better middle of the road term, but, um, sisters, uh, you know, everybody's married, everybody has kids. Um, I have second, lots of second cousins running around the, um, or excuse me, second, uh, second tier nephews and nieces running around the Richmond, Virginia area. Um, so yeah, good, good time growing up there. Spent a lot of time. Uh, I grew up in the country, so I had apple orchards on across the street from my house and cow fields behind it and to the side. So it was, it was very rural. So a couple questions. Firstly, who in their right mind names a road Poor House Road? That seems like you're setting the residents up for failure. <laughs> well, you know what? That's that's uh that I didn't even think about that fact that I threw that out there. Um so it was called Poor House Road because during the Civil War there was an old farm that turned into a medical facility. Uh and and it was nicknamed the Poor House. 
So, you know, when the, I guess by the time they were, you know, hundreds of, you know, over a hundred years later, maybe paving that road, they were like, well, we'll call this poor house road. That's the, that's the most noted, you know, notable. That's, that's the, that's the landmark that this gravel road goes by. So, yeah, but lots of, uh, it's, it's in the middle, you know, Winchester is the Apple capital of Virginia. I'm pretty sure that's still the case. Uh, so, you know, just, thousands of acres of apple trees all around that area but really you know as a when you leave a place like that you and you you get older you're like wow I, I lived in a really amazing area that had lots of history and as a kid I didn't pay a lick of attention to any of it but now when I go back I'm like look kids that's you know that's George Washington's headquarters right here in downtown Winchester and everybody's like that's kind of a small headquarters for, you know, the first president, but it was, you know, so George Washington actually had an office there that still stands in town, but it was before the revolutionary war. It was when he was just an engineering officer. So um, yeah, pretty, pretty cool. Patsy Klein, Patsy Klein's from Winchester, Virginia. So um, yeah, it's a, it was, it was interesting growing up, but yeah, the whole poorhouse road thing, and think about that. It is a, it is an odd road name uh, to have on your address for sure. Yes. It'd be like doomed Avenue or something. <laughs> yeah. <right. laughs> um, so the other thing, and it's funny because our, our timelines, you know, early on parallel, um, I grew up on a farm. We had, you know, a vegetable garden. We had actually an orchard on the farm. Um, and so you got to see what food was. You got to, you know, see it grow. You got to see how long it takes to grow. You got to see things that make it thrive, see things that, that kill it. But it gives you an appreciation of, you know, fundamental nutrition. Um, with your dad having this amazing garden, were you eating what he was growing? Was it a vegetable garden? Were you kind of brought up around that kind of very natural kind of, uh, nutritional environment versus maybe someone that grew up in New York City that kind of was exposed to the process side? Um, I grew up with all of it. We had little Debbie's, um, and we had a big, um, uh, what do they call it? Like we had a cellar that my, so my mom would can and can a lot of the vegetables from the garden. And we, you know, we could, uh, in our cellar, in our root cellar, we could keep potatoes for year round use, um, from the garden. Uh, and then they froze a lot of stuff as well. The, I would say I ate, you know, all the standard American fare of, of the seventies and eighties, they weren't, uh, my parents weren't, uh, super focused on, on nutrition. Like, like it's easy to be now. Um, but I would say all in all, we ate fairly healthy, you know, uh, make uh, the first fast food joint in our hometown was McDonald's. And, you know, that was, like to get a McDonald's happy meal, uh, as a kid was like, you know, a Christmas or Easter kind of event. Um, so very, very rare. Uh, I, my dad grew a, a green bean and it seems most people love them. And I don't know if you're familiar with the varieties of green beans, but he grew this green bean called blue lakes. Uh, and my mom would can these things, and it seemed like we'd have a hundred quarts of green beans down there all the time. I could not stand them. I would, I would hold out. I would be sitting at the dinner table, uh, as I recall it, but for what seems like forever, uh, just refusing to eat those green beans. Um, and I still don't like them to this day. 
you know, a skinny, a skinny French green bean that's steamed with a little bit of salt and pepper on it. That's fine. But yeah, blue lake green beans, not my favorite. I actually eat, I was kind of a finicky punk kid when it came to eating, uh, what was good for me. I, uh, I just, there was a lot of stuff I didn't like. Um, and now I'm like, man, to, to, to be back there and have access to all of that, uh, now would be amazing. And I just kind of, you know, again, kind of like all of the history of my hometown, I, I didn't, I didn't appreciate it as much as I should have as a kid, but you know, I got it naturally cause I didn't enjoy the taste of, of some of the vegetables that he grew. So, but yeah, it was, uh, it was interesting. You talk about, um, food and the process and we would, we would butcher pigs with my uncle Jimmy. We, you know, we, we get, uh, grab some, some little ones and raise them all year. And then before it got real cold, you know, I think it was usually around early November, we, we slaughter the, the pigs. And so when I, um, I remember this picture, I haven't seen it in years, but I had a picture in front of the scrapple rack. And if you know what scrapple is, you know what it's made from. And so you can imagine what was hanging on that rack, you know, with me as a little, uh, you know, little toehead in my corduroy coat, under all of those organs and everything hanging on there. It was a, it was a pretty funny picture uh, to think back to. Well, I, I was never that fussy with the vegetables. I was super fussy as a kid, but I was fussy with meat. So it had to be, and to this day, I'm the same. I'm like a surgeon with meat. I can't have any fat, gristle, anything like that. And I think that came, my dad was a, a vet, veterinarian. So we had all kinds of, you know, things coming through. Some made it, some didn't. And then, you know, he would hunt and occasionally hit something with the car by mistake and I end up hanging up in the, the house somewhere. So, yeah, I think it was more of a childhood trauma element <laughs> that led me to some of the, the aversion to some of the meats. But that stayed with me to this day. But with the vegetables, like I couldn't stand avocado, for example, and I have them every single day now. So you definitely do kind of grow out of some of those dislikes. Yeah, yeah I think so. I think ranger school uh not to jump ahead but ranger school definitely cured me of a lot of my my won't eat certain foods issues except for beets man i uh, in mountain phase of ranger school beets even there i thought beets sucked so uh um and i generally like the taste of dirt but there was just something about beets and it kind of tasted like dirt and it kind of tasted just not right um so yeah haven't ever haven't ever gotten the uh, hang of eating beets um but meat, yeah, that, that was, you know, we would actually, um, I've never seen this anywhere else, but my mom and dad would, would can pork so that like the loins, um, they would, you know, just like they'd be hanging out on the shelf next to the green beans in these, uh, in these sealed courts. And, uh, my mom would make this, um, this like gravy and pork loin concoction and, you know, throw that on a little bit of rice. That was, yeah, I could, I could, I never, uh, I never had any issues eating the, you know, my dad would process the hams and, and do, um, he would process them country ham style. So loved country ham, loved, loved all the meat um, growing up. I think the weirdest thing I ever ate and I didn't know I was eating, it was like cow tongue. I don't remember enjoying that. And I never liked liver. Um, but yeah, the meats were, were, were never an issue like the veggies were. So we, yeah, we were a little bit different there. Yeah, we were raised on um, liver and kidneys and stuff too. So the only thing I didn't, I never liked was haggis. I couldn't eat that. That was just too much. <laughs> 
So how I only know what that is. I only know what that is because I've seen um, the movie Highlander about a, a thousand times. You know, but uh, yeah. I could see not eating that. <laughs> <laughs> I still can't believe that Scotland was liberated by an Australian. It's it's amazing what you learn through history. <laughs> um, so with that, before we're going to move on, with that farm background upbringing, it definitely found its way into how I kind of raised my son nutritionally. And again, I'm not some um, you know scientist when it comes to nutrition, but I see middle of the road good nutrition versus a lot of the the stuff that's um, clearly killing our population looking at them um how has that factored into how you raise you know excuse me how you feed your children at home and even at school so my kids um i i would again i would have to say we you know i liked your choice of words there middle of the road um we have all of this, you know, we have a lot of the junk you would find in a normal house. As far as if you get in our pantry, you're going to see some potato chips. You're going to see, um, you're going to see sweets here and there. I would like to think that there's less of that in our house than a lot of people have. We don't generally have juice ever, you know, or it's very rare that we have, um, you know, boluses of sugar that can be quickly drank in our house. So no sodas, you know, very, every once in a while, some, some, um, apple cider or something like that, especially around the holidays, but not much of that. Um, and I would say, uh, so I'll tell you a story. So my kids, my kids are generally homeschooled and always have been. And, you know, I spent 25 years in the army. So as I was getting close to retirement, Carly um, knew that I had kind of shifted gears and didn't have like a full time responsibility at work because they give you a, a nice window to to make sure you transition well um, as you're as you're getting ready to retire. Or at least my organization did that pretty well. So I became the substitute teacher on occasion. Carly's like, "This is great. I can actually go to a doctor's appointment, you know, in a normal time of the day, and you can come home." So, you know, I, I got home. And I would, uh, or I'd be home and she'd be like, okay, here's what you're going to do with the kids. And Will's got to do this and Ava this and that, you know, Luke at that point was a baby. So he, you know, just had to keep an eye on him. Um, I think that was maybe something we did two or three times. And then it became, oh, hey, I've got to go do this thing. And I, and I bought you all tickets to go to this movie or, oh, and I, you know, you've got to take the kids to a play date at the park with so-and-so and, and, and their kids. And uh, it quickly dawned on me that I got fired as the substitute teacher, <laughs> because, you know, apparently that 20, at that point, you know, about 25 years in the military had um, made me not the best substitute teacher. So uh, in realizing that my, my systems and my methodologies at that point in my life were not um, necessarily that great when it came to raising kids on certain subjects, you know, I, I defer to Carly a lot on the, on the, how that eat works in our house. Um, and with that, you know, she's very, she's, she gets it. She's like, yeah, you want them to be in, you know, you want them to have food issues when they leave the net, you know, when they leave the house, um, you, you can, you can be hardcore and, and, uh, militaristic about it, which I don't like to think I'm that way in general, but I think I get that way every once in a while on little bands of, of space. So, 
we're, we're very um, kind of wide open here. They, they have sweets, they have good food, they have um, access and we make them, you know, where we know they're, we're all a little short on certain types of food. You know, we try to make sure we're supplementing that with good whole food supplements uh, where required. And, and, um, and so they're going to get, they're, they're kind of seeing all of it. Um, my, uh, they, 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 they give me a hard time because I talk about sugar being the devil. Um, meanwhile, again, I grew up with little Debbie's, uh, you know, an occasional box of lucky charms, but there was always cereal in my house, all the things we didn't have a clue about, uh, that now we know are like, Oh, look at, you know, look at insulin resistance and all the fun we have in this country because of it. Um, so because I know what I know, I do tend to get a little um, over the top on some of that stuff. And Carly reels me in and, and keeps me balanced with regard to how to take care of the kids. So, yeah, probably similar to a lot of people who do what we do and pay attention to what we pay attention to from a nutrition standpoint who have kids. Well, exactly. And that's the thing. That's the, the tough thing because you can't, for example, force a child to eat something it doesn't want to eat. I mean, you can, but you end up being a tyrant basically. So, but yeah, I think even with, with adults, you know, I was talking to, uh, Susan Lopez, who's a nutritionist the other day. And, and it's like, again, there's a fine line between eating clean and turning your food experience into a chemistry lab and you lose that connection with food then you lose that love of cooking you lose that smell as you're preparing it and priming the digestive system so that i think that middle of the road is it i mean my little boy you know i'll take him to starbucks he loves those frappuccinos like once in the blue moon and you know we have we have some of the sugary sugar sugary cereals that cycle through some of the better ones so i'm totally fine with that but yeah you you know sometimes not all the time i think is the real key yeah, I think so. And, you know, my kids are fairly, they're all fairly active. So, you know, from a, from a sugar in and, and, and a calories burnt standpoint, we're still, everybody's still looking pretty good. Um, so, yeah. I hope that, you know, all these books on, you know, nutrition and, and everything that are behind me and marked up, you know, they'll, at some point be a little more interested in it, uh, here and there. So the, the, some of the kids, it's funny. Some of them are like, Hey, you know, um, one of my boys is very much into, he's like, I want to be ripped, you know? So it's like, okay, well, let's do, you know, we'll do pull-ups and, you know, he plays sports and does ninja intensity and, and, uh, and he wants to be ripped. So, you know, that's an, that's an easy end to, to just be like, all right, let's do, do some body weights stuff, you know, all of the components of a Murph, right? Pull-ups, push-ups, air squats is really all you need for your whole life in some cases, but um, that's a good base to, uh, to get them into. So if I can get them a little bit interested in, in working out in a way that I think is important and regularly and, and, you know, paying attention to how they eat and what they eat and, and how much, of it that they eat. And then, you know, the sleep thing, that's, man, that's good. That's a tough, that's, that is a tough nut to crack. Uh, as I have two, well, I have three, three of my four kids are now teenagers and the, the older two are very, you know, they're, they're following that 
you know, Matthew Walker timeline. Hey, they get a little bit older, they, they start growing their, their circadian rhythm literally seems to change and shifts to the right, you know, two, three hours. And, and it's like, I need to, uh, need to figure out how to make them understand how important and how much better life will be if they just always try to get good sleep. Um, because it's been, it's been like, as I've really worked on, on myself in that space, it's, it's a, it's definitely a game changer. Absolutely. Well, something I talk about a lot because most of the audience are shift workers, you know, police, fire, medical. And, uh, when you start exploring that, you look at the acute effects and the chronic effects of sleep deprivation. It's absolutely terrifying. And it, you know, it, it shows itself in all the funerals that we get to attend to or attend. Um, but yeah, that's one thing I found with my boy. He got into track. And so you, reminding him that sleep is a, you know, performance enhancing drug. And that if he wants to, to get these scholarships that he's dreaming about as he gets through high school, that is a really important tool. And it's so far it's worked. I mean, he's gone, he's gone to bed at nine o'clock ever since he was an infant because I had all these parents saying, well, you know, he, my, my, my child gets me up at three. Like, what time do you put it bed? Oh, you know, seven or six. It's like, well, to me, in my, you know, layman's head, I'm like, well, if they put my bed to sleep, at, excuse me, my child to sleep at nine and they wake me up at five, well, then beautiful. You know, we're, we're both winning. And it literally stayed. He's about to turn 15 in a few months and he stayed on that same exact bedtime the whole time. And there's, there's leeway, obviously, if it's summer break or whatever, but, um, by not ever deviating, he's never really questioned it, which is kind of cool. That's awesome. Yeah. The, um, my oldest son is 17 and uh, he likes to stay up late, but he'll get up early too. I mean, I, last there was one point last year where I was like, Hey, you want to get up at four and, you know, drive a few hours and do a, do this 14 or loop tomorrow. And he was like, sure. You know? And so, um, but yeah, getting good sleep and, and, and figuring out how to educate the youngins on that one. That's, that's the tough nut to crack. They're, they're all okay. Again, probably on the better side of, of, uh, of average, um, but with electronics and, and all the, all the things that seems to be attached to children as they get, um, as they get in those upper teen years, it's, it's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of dynamics you and I didn't have to figure out when we were kids. Right. Absolutely. Well, speaking of exercise when we were kids, going back to your kind of journey, ultimately you ended up being at the absolute pinnacle in, you know, special operations, special forces. Um, when you were kind of school age, what, what exercises or what sports were you playing back then? So I was a really tiny kid. Um, seemed to always be a growth spurt behind everybody up until about halfway through high school and in um, junior high at school, I rent, you know, I went to a little Christian school outside of Winchester. And so we didn't have all the, all the sports, but we had um, one of our teachers was a, was a runner. He had run the Boston marathon. And so he was like, Hey, you want me to do a cross country program? And so in, in junior high, we ran against all the public schools around us um, in cross country, and I played junior high basketball. And then I went to public school in the ninth grade, and I played basketball in the ninth grade. Um, besides all of that, I was big into BMX bikes and stuff. So I would race BMX bikes at the local park um, 
in Winchester on Sundays and get my butt kicked because, again, I seemed to be a foot smaller than all the other kids. Uh, but I loved it. I love bicycles. Um, so that after after ninth grade basketball, I kind of shifted um, mountain biking had had uh, been introduced to me and like those kind of solo effort sports became more interesting to me. I, I was skateboarding and spending a lot of time on bicycles and, and that, so, so from high school, ninth grade basketball till um, club lacrosse at George Mason university, right before I went in the army, that was the, there was a big gap in organized sports, but I still, you know, I'd run 10 Ks and I'd, I'd do mountain bike races wherever I could find one that I could get to um, and, and stay very active and all of that. And, you know, I mean, you can know if you've ever spent much time on a skateboard, but you can cover hundreds of miles on a skateboard if that's something you're interested in and, and you enjoy doing. So, um, so, so that was, that was kind of the the athletic space I lived in. Now, when you were at the school age, you mentioned about joining the army. Obviously, you know, that's a that's a huge part of your life. Were you dreaming of the military then, or was there something prior to that? Um, I grew up playing army a lot. You know, we had uh, we had this world war i think it was world war ii like navarone toy set it was like this big plastic mountain and and i would take those you know so my brother had a navarone and then i had a navarone so i had tons of little german soldiers and american soldiers and i would i would literally put those in my backpack and go out to the creek and the cow fields and and set up battles there because i had you know i had um i had um beach transports and all these different vehicles I could take out there and build these big, big elaborate wars. And I'd lose, of course, half my, um, half my soldiers in the Creek, but the, so it was kind of always in me. And then, um, gosh, there's a lot that happened between, um, being a kid playing army and joining the military. I honestly, um, being a high schooler when Top Gun came out, I really, uh, was on fire about flying jets for the military. Um, and again, top gun. So I was thinking Navy, I guess, but I got into, I was like, oh, I'll get a degree in applied mathematics and I'll, I'll do, you know, eventually figure out Navy ROTC and I'll become a fighter pilot. But I also knew that I love the idea of, of ground stuff. Um, like my dad had done and, uh, you know, I'd look at his old infantry, yearbook from basic training from the fifties. And, you know, I just thought that was really cool. Um, applied mathematics kicked my butt. I realized I wasn't as good as math as I thought I was. And one of my biggest issues probably was I also wasn't that interested in going to school either. Um, so I met a guy named Randy Kramer in a class and he had done three or four years in third ranger battalion in the army. And um, we, you know, he would just tell me stories about Ranger Battalion and infantry. And, and I, it just, I was just like, this sounds amazing. Um, but I also really felt, uh, felt this huge desire to fly something. So I started talking to the Army recruiters about 
aviation and and you know there was a point where the army was supposed to get the a10s according to recruiters um so maybe that was true maybe it wasn't but then the you know the the first gulf war the a10s were so um such a key weapon system that i guess the air force was like no we're going to keep these uh is the story i heard so then i was looking at helicopters and then i was like well hey can i can i go is there a mos where i can do ground stuff and like do infantry stuff and fly helicopters and they were like no there there isn't you know so that was you know a lot of people have interesting recruiter stories my recruiter at that point was like no you, your best bet is to go do infantry stuff or you know ranger battalion stuff and then go to flight school later in your career when you get that out of your system so that made sense and i kind of started going that way and after 2 years of school at lord fairfax community college and and george mason i was you know, I wasn't, I was like, eh, I'd probably be best to finish college later based on my performance. Um, so with all of that storyline from Randy, I, I went and, and uh, signed up for the army and um, somewhere around the spring of 1991. Uh, and I got a pinpoint Ranger regiment assignment. So what that means um, for your listeners is I was going to be given the ability, you know, afforded the opportunity to at least try to go to Ranger Regiment. So that would require me successfully passing basic training and, and infantry training and then passing jump school and then passing Ranger indoctrination program. So that was I got that on a contract, but I had to sign up for four years to get that. Um, and then in basic training, I saw people who had just popped into infantry for two years, get offered the exact same thing when the Ranger liaison came over to basic training to talk to us. So I was like, huh, they didn't tell me about that. Um, but anyway, it all worked out. <laughs> well, it's funny because actually uh, one of your peers, Pat McNamara, came on the show a while ago now. And he by far still has the best uh, recruitment story because his dad sent him in with a lawyer and the lawyer made sure that he got exactly what he asked for. And, and to this day, 600 episodes in almost, I still haven't heard anyone that's done that. So that, that to me is still like the, the gold standard of recruitment is bring a lawyer with you. Uh, that's, uh, yeah, I'm surprised they let him in. Uh, or I'm <laughs> surprised they let him in the recruiting office with a lawyer, I guess. But yeah, he's uh, he's a hoot for sure. Um the uh, it just it doesn't surprise me uh, based on all the stories, right? So <laughs> very cool. All right. Well, then I know I was listening to a great conversation you had with Carl Lamb a few years ago, um, another obviously peer of yours. Um, and what was interesting is you ended up at the absolute you know pinnacle. Ranger school specifically didn't go flawlessly for you. So talk to me about that. Oh. Um, Okay, so first of all, you you mentioned Mac and and uh, Kyle as as peers, and I just want everybody to know that both of those guys are way older than I am. So, um, you know, uh, as far as as peers go, I was on the I was on the young side of of their peers, maybe. Um, so if you if you heard the Team VTAC podcast, you're referring to Ranger Regiment, not Ranger School. Ah, I um, apologize. So yeah, yeah. So uh, so again, we talked about it. I I I got through everything, and I I uh, 
I'm, I'm in rip and, and I'm, and I'm getting asked, you know, where I want to go. There's first, second, third battalion, second battalion was out of Fort Lewis, Washington. I had never really been anywhere much in the world. So I was like, heck yeah, I'm going to, if, if they'll take me, I want to go, you know, I want to go to as new and new an environment as I can. So I signed up for second ranger battalion. I went out there and, um, yeah, it was an amazing career at second bat. I was there for, gosh, um, four, I think four, four months, maybe five months and got kicked out for an accidental discharge on a range. Um, thought my military, you know, at that moment, it was, it was the most significant, um, fail of my life. And, you know, uh, it, it's funny to think back on it. Um, obviously, you know, it was, I was exactly where I was supposed to be with how all that happened. It's kind of how I look, look at life a lot of times now. And I look back at that specific incident. Um, yeah. Uh, it didn't go as planned. Um, had a, uh, it was, a, uh, so an accidental discharge means I, sh- I cracked off around when, when I didn't intend to crack off around. Now I was on a firing range, on a qualification course, my, my rifle was pointed down range, you know, at targets, but I still cracked around off that. I didn't mean to crack off. And there was a, there was a young, you know, full of piss and vinegar NCO behind me that saw it. And he came up and asked me if I meant for that round to crack off that he had noticed um, when there was no target up. And I said, no, Sergeant, I didn't. And uh, he immediately took me to the range safety officer and, you know, at that point it was a, it was a battalion wide, uh, event because I was a battalion level NCO and, and I left and, you know, they were very, you know, they had a standard. I, I, I didn't maintain it. And they said, Hey, come back in a year and, and see about, um, getting back in the regiment. So I went to I Corps Lurse after that. And again, you know, all boo-boo lit, you know, initially thinking I'd finish my four years and go back to school. Um, and very quickly, uh, we called I Corps the Ranger retirement home. Cause if anybody messed up in second bat and it wasn't like horrible uh, and, and their, and their leadership was going to look out for them, they would, they would call down to I Corps and be like, Hey, I got a, I got a good, uh, candidate for coming to, to Lurse that, you know, he did this, did that. So they, you know, all of that happened. I went to I Corps and I quickly found out that, you know what, it's, it's, it's not so bad being a paratrooper in an uh, in army infantry unit, uh, especially a LERSH unit. Lots of high caliber people to learn from um, above me and all of that. And, and quickly realized, hey, you know what, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be able to have a really good time and I'm going to be able to learn a lot and I'm going to be able to be a leader very quickly here. Uh, just like I hope to be in Ranger Regiment. So when did you kind of have the desire to level up yet again, go through selection for the unit? So I went to, um, so yeah, so so from thinking that my military life was over and, uh, and you know, I was this horrible soldier for what happened, um, I quickly transitioned to this is, amazing i'm i'm doing lots of cool stuff uh the cambrian patrol which is a 
patrolling competition in Wales in 93 and 94, went to ranger school really early, got, you know, a pen D5 in like 26 months from the time I joined the army, even with that, you know, getting the boot from, from regiment was a jump master, um, very quickly and, and, and loved all that stuff. Uh, so when I, when I got towards that point where it was time to reenlist, I was like, well, um, if I reenlist from Fort Bragg, which was an option, whatever I want to, you know, whatever I, I hope to get into is there from a training standpoint. So it would make sense to already be there. So I reenlisted and went to Bragg. Um, so, yeah, so I went, um, so I left I Corps LERS and went directly to 82nd Airborne Division LERS. Now, the interesting thing about supporting the 82nd Airborne Division is because you're actually attached to a massive airborne unit you do a lot better training, a lot more realistic training. Every time a brigade or a battalion was jumping into a, a field problem, we were out there, you know, doing recce for them before they, before they, uh, before they did their mass tax. If they went to JRTC, you know, we were there before them. Um, so it was a much different environment. We, I realized that, oh, in, in I-Corps, we actually had to make up all of our training because we didn't actually have an infantry unit that we directly supported, uh, especially one that was co-located with us. So that was really cool. Um, ended up being in 82nd LERS, I think right around three years. And then I was like, ah, you know, and I'm, I'm just going to go for, 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 you know, the, the ultimate leveling up experience. And um, so I went to selection for the unit and that was um, I went in spring of 99. Uh, the, the, you know, I had a lot of people, especially in, in the 82nd and this is, you know, pre internet time and I didn't have a computer or, or uh, um, all of the access to information that people seem to have now. Um, I had a lot of people saying, you know, Hey, yeah, don't get your hopes up is, you know, I'll qualify it as, uh, or summarize it as, Hey, don't get your hopes up. You know, they don't, you're not, you're not going from SF and you're not going from Ranger regiment. They're probably not going to take you even if you physically succeed. So, um, so I was like, you know, kind of my mindset was, well, if, if there's something I need to do, you know, whatever, hopefully at, at a minimum, minimum, if I don't make it, they'll tell me what I need to do to try again. And then I'll know. So that was kind of my mindset going into it. Uh, a little bonus after getting it organized and getting set up to go and, and approved to go. Uh, I got a little message that said, congratulations. You know, you're, you have been specially selected to be a drill sergeant. Um, you know, specifically assigned to um, Sergeant for for MOSs that had um, women and men coming into the uh, to the MOS. So that was a huge, um, well, it was a huge motivation to pass selection first time based on that. What I want to do. I mean, I you know, I think what drill sergeants do are amazing, and I had amazing drill sergeants that put me through my first, you know, first few months of training, but I had no desire to be a drill sergeant. So 
thank the good Lord, I made it through selection the first time and I didn't have to go be a drill sergeant. And, and uh, yeah, it was, it was a first time go. When you, you talk about, you know, being part of a tier one unit, obviously it's the, the most elite of the most elite. When you look back with the incredibly high attrition rate that you get at that level, are there any elements of your childhood or, or even your, your military training that set you up for success mentally or physically, um, you know, where so many people rang the bell? Um, probably, you know, uh, one of the things, and this just came up because I was at the hospital and this lady was asking me all these questions. Uh, and I have, so uh, backing up to the early 80s, I have double lot buckshot lodged in my hip. And so it shows up on every x-ray. I was in a hunting accident. My father and I were hunting on his parents' property. And um, we always sat up on this little ridge line. Uh, and there was a, another hunter on the same ridge line, but facing down into the neighbor's property. And he was, you know, completely decked out in orange hunter safety color and, and, you know, looking down into the low ground on that farm versus our farm. Well, anyway, he, um, he decided to turn around and crack off one of the barrels of his double up of his, uh, 12 gauge shotgun. One hit my, one of the pellets hit my dad and one hit me and lodged in my hip and they left it in there. Um, so that was, uh, either, gosh, I think it was 1982. It might've been 1983. And um, it was Thanksgiving morning. So the day after Thanksgiving, now known as Black Friday, I don't know if we called it that back then, but um, my dad and I were at the house and obviously I didn't have to go to school because it was Thanksgiving and he wasn't uh, going to work because he had a uh, double out buckshot that had just you know lodged in his chest cavity and luckily it hit a rib and stopped um behind his heart he got hit in the back and um we were walking you know we lived on like three acres so like as far as farming goes we would always go up to my grandma's to to do our the bigger gardening or you know he would keep a few cows up there to keep the grass down in the fields and everything um he was he was uh he was bored and i was bored and uh, so the day after getting shot in a hunting accident, he looked at me and was like, hey, you want to go hunting? And I was like, I probably paused. But then I was like, yeah, what else are we going to do? So, you know, the day after that accident, we went back up to the farm. We went um, we weren't moving that fast. We went to this little apple pile uh, that my uncle had put in some lower lower property that um, that usually had a lot of deer around. We didn't see any deer that afternoon we just saw squirrels and stuff but um you know that that was kind of how my dad was wired you had a if if you you, you know you kind of had a he had a he was quiet a lot of times and but very purposeful and he just got stuff done you know and he was like he wouldn't quit and he didn't give up so i i think somewhere along the lines i got a you know if you don't quit and you don't give up you you know you'll you'll either succeed or figure out a, you know, a way around or, you know, through the obstacle or under it, whatever the case may be, uh, that will, you know, you'll get to the, you know, you'll get to the results, whether those results are the same, um, that you thought they were going to be when you started, 
out for something. But I think, I think that was a very, like that specific instance of, Hey, we just got shot. You want to go hunting? Um, was, was probably a pretty big, um, part of my upbringing that I didn't realize at the time, but now I look back on it and, uh, you know, probably a pretty, pretty important moment, um, where I, I was asked a question and I was able to kind of think about it and, and like, you know, as a young kid do the math on, well, you know, got shot the last time we went hunting, um, and, and go, yeah, probably not probably now that that's happened, that's never going to happen again. Right. What are the chances of getting, um, shot by a hunter on your property two days in a row? Um, (laughs) the, uh, that was, that was pretty, pretty big looking back. And I think also the, just in general, uh, I grew up amongst a family, both, um, close in and, and extended of, of kind of, hard charging, hardworking people. So I, I kind of had, uh, I was fortunate to have that wiring, whether it was nurture or nature. I'm not sure what, what level would be what. Well, I think another interesting thing, it's kind of, you know, debunking some of the myths is when, before I started this, for example, you know, when you think of anyone in special operations, special forces, you tend to kind of have that mental picture of a 1980s action hero, you know, all, you know, steroid, <laughs> steroid fed musculature and, you know, six foot whatever. But when I speak to a lot of the people in that community, of course, there are, you know, the bigger and the smaller, but the average person is not the kind of behemoth. So, you know, as I've heard you talk with, with Kyle, you said you were, correct me if I'm wrong, 5'10 and 165. I got that right. So yeah, that's not. Yeah, that's- Still the case. Yeah, beautiful. Well, and I'm pretty much the same. I'm six foot and like 170. So, you know, kind of almost the same frame. That's not what you envision. So, so talk to me about that. Obviously, it's not about, you know, being the world's strongest man to be able to, you know, deadlift logs over your head. You know, what, what is physically, what is it that contributes to being an elite operator like that? that isn't purely from muscle mass that so many people were led to believe for so long? I think, you know, I have spent decades thinking about, you know, physical preparedness um, and, you know, truth, truth in lending. I, again, I was always a growth spurt behind as a kid. So I think I, I think it initially uh, formed as little man's uh, complex. I mean, I, I just hated that I was always so much smaller than everyone that was, um, you know, lining up against me on, on at the BMX track, or I was playing basketball with or whatever the case may be. So in 10th grade, we were given the opportunity to go, uh, to do, um, advanced PE as opposed to regular PE and advanced PE was as a sophomore in high school, where I had my first, introduction to a, 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 a gym with weights in it, you know, so all of the, all the stuff you can imagine being in a small Virginia school in the early or uh, in the mid eighties um, with regard to um, bench press and, and, and all of the cable machines and everything of, of the, of the time. Um, and I loved it. And I, and I was super, you know, I was still a, a, 
like at the beginning of the 10th grade, I was probably just getting into my growth spurt finally. And I, I, I started high school at four foot 10 and 92 pounds. And I think by the time I got my license towards the end of the 10th grade, I was like five, four and 126 pounds. I think that's what my license said, if I recall, somewhere right around there. So I was growing and, um, along with that growth spurt, I was lifting weights and I was still riding bicycles. So, you know, the whole, you know, if you, if you think about kind of the mixed modality stuff that CrossFit made very popular, you know, I was getting my Metcon and I was getting my weightlifting. I would definitely say there wasn't a whole lot of the compound movements uh, that became very popular because they're very effective uh, later in my life. But um, yeah, um, I, I wanted to get strong. I wanted to be, be bigger. And I, um, I have, I think probably I have the bones of a bigger person, a guy, uh, a guy that maybe is five ten but walks around at 200 pounds. And I, I walk around at 165 pounds. So when I fall, you know, I'm pretty resilient and, and, uh, and I'm not, you know, I'm not carrying a bunch of extra weight around, whether that's muscle or otherwise. So, you know, I, I can get up quicker. I can, I can, uh, I'm not carrying extra, extra baggage. And I think uh, back to your original question, it, there is something to be said for that normal size dude or, or, or female for that matter. You know, it's, it's not the, it's not the super, uh, super thick 225 64 Adonis that a lot of people think about when they think about special operations guys. I mean, I always joke, um, cause I've always been a little guy and I probably still have a little bit of a little man's complex. I don't know if that stuff ever goes away, but I'm like, ah, you know, if, uh, you know, they can put a lot more of me on helicopters. They, than they can of you, you know, like, uh, obviously I have some, some, some friends who fit that, Six two six four two twenty five um, bronze statue operator physique uh, piece as well. So you know, being a little guy, I, I don't. I, I think I think I'm more aligned with the standard, like the norm, versus the uh, the outlier. Um, probably in my you know, and this is like from, from young kid in an infantry LARS unit or a ranger regiment or, you know, all 25 years, I would say most people, if, and, 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 and this includes all of the, like the gods, right? Like, oh, that guy, man, he can run the O course faster than anyone. Oh, that guy, he finished, you know, first and best ranger seven times, you know, whatever. They're all, they're all right in that. 165 to probably 185 range a lot of times and maybe maybe 510 to 61 um is is more than norm well i think it's a really valuable perspective i mean you're coming again from you know the the highest tier when you talk about law enforcement when you talk about fire which is obviously you know my community um there's that kind of element even with that and sadly that's where some of the prejudice comes where for example women in the fire service and then you look at crossfit and you look at some of these phenoms that you have in these gyms and i you know i, I coach and train at my local one here in ocala 
it it totally you know totally myth busts that whole thing where you get these you know women that say for example or men but you know people that are 120 130 pounds that are incredible physically and can move way over distance and can lift and push and pull and climb and uh, you know and then you see I've, i wrote about this in the book that i wrote a couple of years ago i remember watching two bodybuilders take the firefighter entrance test and fall apart in the first leg like the first exercise climbing stairs with some hose and not to make fun of them or belittle them but again it made me realize okay yeah on paper on the front of a, a fitness magazine those those guys probably look amazing but when they're asked to do the job of police, fire, military, that's a whole different conversation. And you can absolutely look amazing and still perform at the highest level. But if you're training purely to look amazing, that's a whole different journey than someone who maybe is only 130 pounds, but it can absolutely kill it on a fire ground or you know, in law enforcement, for example. Yeah, not surprising. I, th- I think um, you know there's some specificity in in a lot of what you're talking about too. I mean, I had, uh, you know, one of, I, one of my, I call him one of my kids, gosh, he's just a few years younger than me, but one of the young guys that I was, uh, is still a good friend of mine. His, his, his nickname is Kool-Aid. Um, was, you know, he was, he was always walking around over 200 pounds and, you know, just a really thick farm boy build, uh, guy could squat 500 pounds and we called him Kool-Aid. Cause if we ever, you know, we joked, if we ever needed a hole in a wall, um, you know, we just get Kool-Aid up there and he'd make a hole in the wall. Um, those guys are out there too. The, you know, the, the, the super muscly six two, 230 pounder who can grab all of the hoses and run up all of the stairs, but they've done a lot of work to build that type of capacity into a system that has to maintain all that muscle. You know, so again, that's, you know, I look at that build as the outlier and, 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 and honestly had, you know, I had been on some very long mission sets where the, the big guys kind of got a little, a little, you know, I wouldn't say the big guys. I, I, I recall a, a specific um, operation where we were, we had been at it for many, 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 many hours. And, 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 uh, we had a big, um, like the biggest guy we were cruising around with was a, a seal that had been attached to us. Um, and he was, he was getting a little wobbly and it wasn't, it wasn't a fitness thing. It was a fueling thing. Uh, he just, you know, he had a lot more systems that needed to be maintained and required more maintenance than, you know, me at, 60 pounds lighter than him before we threw our kid on and, and, uh, and running around in the same environment. So it it is interesting when you think about all the different pieces to, to like what, what the care and feeding of a, of an operator or a first responder requirement is, you know, just based on their, like the demands of their personal systems. Absolutely. Well, when they talk about diversity in, in fire service, for example, I think the only place that really has application is the diversity of your crew. You know, there, there's absolutely people that you want to be huge. I mean, breaching obviously is, is something that comes to mind, but then there's also the smaller 
kind of uh, firefighter or you know special operations police officer that you want to drop down an elevator shaft or over the side of a building that maybe you don't want to be 250 pounds so that diversity is amazing as long as you know they all understand that there needs to be a strength component and a strength endurance component and those two you know are not exclusive to each other absolutely yeah i was um i was uh overseas and uh had the you know, misfortune in this instance to be one of the only guys who could fit through uh, an opening in a little, um, what would you call it? Like a, like a little animal pen. Um, and, you know, it, it wasn't such a big deal that I was only uh, one of the couple guys that could fit into the thing. The problem was, you know, two of my, companions had just thrown bangers into that whole little stable full of, you know, poop and dirt particle, uh, filled space. And, and of course now it was just like, a you know, like it was, it was like walking into a cloud of atomized animal poop. Um, so yeah, there, there were times when being the small guy and, and being the only one who could fit in something to check it out was, was cool. And then there were times like, that um that stable i'm talking about that where it was not at all cool <laughs> pretty sure that, that that event maybe took six seven months off my life if, oh i'm sure i'm sure <laughs> <laughs> that sounds horrendous Look, having grown up on a farm that sounds really horrendous um well speaking of your actual deployments of course you know the nature of of the the organization you're a part of um i don't need any specifics at all but what is interesting about your deployments is that you were i know you were first in bosnia and it was pre 9-11 and then obviously your career straddled the other side of that um and I, i kind of told you about this question when we spoke the other day the the thing that I think is very important, it kind of almost mirrors uh, Sebastian Junger when he talks about the Veterans Town Hall, w- the civilians of the world. And I think we're seeing exactly the same thing now with this cor- U- the Ukraine invasion. Um, we get a very polarized view of war in general. So either the kind of very pro-war, which is done by journalists and politicians that will never actually be there, is, you know, kill them all, let God sort them out. And then the very anti-war, they're all a bunch of baby killers. And yet we have men and women, very young men and women that we send away in uniform to go fight these conflicts that don't really get much of a voice. We never really hear stories, you know, unfiltered stories from them. So was there a time at any point where, regardless of the politics that sent you to that particular country, you witnessed whether there's an atrocity or just, you know, a, a general element that there were indeed horrible people that needed to be taken care of? Um, let's see. That's where do you start with that question? The, uh, so I, you know, it's funny. I was just talking to my good friend, Danny, um, and we had been to the same places in the world. There were, there were places where, you know, I'm a, so, so to, to qualify this next statement, I'm, I'm a, you know, I'm a, I'm a God guy. I'm a Jesus guy. Um, I believe in, in good and evil. And there were places in that I have been where it just felt like the presence of evil more so than any other place in the world. Um, that I've been, and I've been a lot of places at this point. So, and I can't, you know, there, it wasn't like I I witnessed some thing or saw some thing. I mean, just like a feeling 
um, of, of, uh, of it. Um, you know, absent any, anything, any other sense or, or, you know, nothing I saw, nothing I smelled, nothing I heard. It was just, you know, a feeling. So, um, and, and kind of like you said, you know, we, we don't talk about, you know, places and, uh, you know, times and dates and places and stuff. But, um, I also saw, uh, and, and, you know, maybe even in that same country that, you know, good, um, families that you, you recognize the qualities of a family, um, that would be, you know, here in Colorado or down in Florida with you or whatever. So, um, it, it, it was, it was, it was interesting. It's been interesting to, to, um, have all the experiences that I've had. I, I would say that again, with that kind of my worldview, I have, I have, uh, like, I haven't had any issues with any of the missions I ever, ever went on and what we were doing and, and, and that being specific, uh, to the, to the actual target. If that, if that answers your question. Well, it actually answers both. Cause I, the other one I asked was with any, any moments of kindness and compassion. I think that's the other side of the coin that also needs to be told. Like right now, who is the devil? The entire country of Russia. Meanwhile, there are Russian men and women and, you know, that are risking everything to protest this war right now. So it's important that we understand that in all these conflicts, there are horrible people amongst these countries the same way there were Nazis in Germany and, you know, all these other things that we've seen in history. But the majority of the people in that country are not thinking of committing genocide or invading another country and they are really, you know, held hostage in their own nation. Yeah, absolutely agree. Uh, that that has been my experience um, in my whole life. And I mean, you know, let's let's be realistic. I can guarantee you there are horrible people in Colorado with me right now that um, that probably need uh, need a reckoning of their own. But it it doesn't mean that all of us Coloradans are are evil. So yeah, I, I, I'm with you. As much as I believe in black and white uh, thinking in certain context i also know there's lots of gray and i don't think anybody who hasn't lived it you know just like with first for you know i mean look at what our police have gone through over the last few years you know how how, how can you expect somebody who lives their life in you know seven to 14 second sound bites um how are you ever gonna get them to understand the the moment by moment requirements of a police officer that 99 plus percent of the time, maybe, or 95% is, is maybe in, in what would be considered a, a, a boring environment. You know, it's, um, it's a lot, it's a lot to, to try to parse out. Now with the background that you have, you know, the, through all the conversation I had and all the, the members of law enforcement I had on here and jujitsu instructors and firearms instructors, you know, there, there's definitely some common denominators that come out with looking at what you've seen the last couple of years through your own particular eyes. What are some of the areas? Because I mean, you know, there's, there's incredible law enforcement, you know, officers out there. There's some incredible agencies, though sadly, there's I think there's more incredible officers than there are agencies. I think some of them are swimming uphill, trying to be good. Um, but 
we can always do better and definitely collectively, you know, we can, we can raise everyone up. What are some of the areas you think that we can do, uh, or, you know, that we can improve on or some, some of the skills that maybe you can bring from your background to law enforcement to, to help them with, you know, what they do face on the streets? I think, man, that's, that's a, that's a great question. Um, I think, uh, well, a couple of things. One, you know, I've never, when I left the military, I went to work for a, a company out here in Colorado and I rebuilt, um, I initially rebuilt executive protection as a program. And then, and then also ended up leading physical security and travel security and, and, and didn't follow the path of a lot of my friends where they just immediately started training and interacting with law enforcement and first responders very regularly, um, as, as a, as a second career. Um, so, so I would say I'm, I'm, a, I'm not that embedded with them at this point. Now I do, <laughs> um, I am a volunteer at my church, uh, as one of the people who helps provide security. And in that regard, I do get to see and, and interact with some of the police officers at, at church very regularly. Um, I think, I think, um, like any organization, you know, the, one thing is you, you got to care for your people. Uh, I, I would say even even if I was at an organization where we, you know, as far as budgets go and 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 get, having all the toys and being able to try all the new things, I, I was very fortunate to be in that environment. But when when I think back to the unit, it was it honestly was the people, um, and we took care of each other. You know, there's something to be said for an all volunteer organization where, you know, my big, like I use this as my daily um, kind of set point thought when I get up every day, you know, one of the first things I heard or the first thing I heard in, in an operator training course that stuck with me was um, to this, like very profoundly stuck with me and sticks with me now is selection is an ongoing process. So being in an organization with all volunteers where you are expected to earn your slot, not just for six weeks or six months or, you know, till whatever your mystical probation period as a newbie ends, um, you know, every day, you know, you, you're, you, you should be trying to, um, to, to, to make sure you're still being selected. Now I'm, I'm not going to lie and say that I, every day I went to work, I was like the ultimate and focused uh, performance um, because I'm a human being just like everybody else. But, you know, you know in that on the averages, I worked harder than I've ever worked anywhere. And I, you know, and that's to be like middle of the pack. It, it was amazing to be in that environment where, um, where you can be with a bunch of people who are all kind of in that, you know, whether, you know, politics, music, whatever, you know, footwear, who cares? Uh, we all had our own take on all of that kind of stuff. But when it came to the job, it was, it was everybody, everybody on board, everybody giving way together. Um, I think, any little bit of that that you can impart into a first responder organization would be huge. Uh, Cause if you, you know, if you don't feel like the people that 
are your bosses and your managers give a shit about you? You know, how do you start the day? And then when you're a customer base, if you're a police officer, you know, um, who you're sworn to protect and, and who you're ultimately serving is, is rude to you. And, and, you know, there's all these sound bites, uh, that, that are constantly filling your head about how much your, your profession as a whole sucks, you know, that that's horrible. So, so, you know, I don't, I don't know exactly how you can combat that at the individual officer or, or fire person, uh, level without like that, Hey, we care about our people at the organizational level, kind of hierarchy going on. Um, and then, you know, so, so that's very general and, 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 you know, who the heck knows how to, how to get that figured out. But I, I also know that, um, based on my own personal experiences with making tons of mistakes, like your personal performance is huge. I mean, if you're not, if you're not taking care, if you're not taking the time to take care of yourself as best you can based on your life circumstances uh, and you're a cop or you're in a fire department that's, you know, maybe not a, a great work environment, um, man, that that just adds to it and makes it super tough. Like you were saying earlier, I mean, if you're on 13, you know, if you're working graveyards in that environment, and you've never been given a class on, on, uh, like what you, if, like if you're working graveyards in 2022 and you don't know what your super chiasmatic nucleus is and, and the fact that that's kind of like your circadian 24 ish hour, uh, clock that you reset with light, uh, to ensure that you have the best opportunity to get good sleep and some of the other systems that go along with that. If you, if you haven't been given a class on that, um, or taking the time to figure it out on your own, you know, you're just starting at such a deficit. It, it, it's, it, it makes it hard. Well, let's, let's, uh, you know, walk through that door now then. So I, again, I harp on sleep medicine all the time. I bring on sleep medicine experts because I, through a complete accident, I discovered Kurt Parsley through a Barbell Shrugged podcast and was like, holy shit, why didn't I know about this sleep deprivation stuff and, you know, how it's killing us slowly and how it's destroying our acuity in doing the actual job. So, you know, now you have the microphone and you have the responders listening. Can you give them a kind of cliff notes version of, of, you know, what that class would look like? Oh, man. Um, let's see. S sleep prep for well i could I'll, I'll lay the foundation of i will get uh i will get you a couple links i don't know how thorough your notes are on these but i'll get a couple links that anybody can click on and, and get a master class and and sleep uh through through some of our through some of the super smart people i listen to from a from a uh podcast standpoint, but I met, uh, so my last three years at the unit, I was the POTIF director. Um, Preservation of the Force and Family was a new project at the SOCOM level. And, and my organization wanted to get as much of that money and support that we could for all of our operational folks and their families. And so I, I was selected as a guy who liked all four domains, uh, physical, mental, spiritual, and social 
as as a guy who would go down there and and, and work with the POTIF headquarters element down in Tampa to um, to build out our team at, at the unit. So actually want to say I was in a, at least one, maybe two or three meetings with with Parsley and and, uh, you know, he was obviously still s- supporting the SEALs uh, in his medical role. And, you know, even it, with some of my clients, I'm, I, I am not a fan of like the, what would be considered normal sleep meds. But I have had people use uh, Doc Parsley's stuff and, and with success. I had, um, you know, sometimes they don't need all three capsules a night. Uh, you know, you can, you can have some morning lag if, if you don't need that much of the, of the potion that he puts in his pills, but it's all natural stuff that, that is, is not just basically knocking you out. Like a lot of the, a lot of the prescription stuff does or, or NyQuil, you know, where you, where you're, yeah, you're, you're restfully laying in bed all night, but you're not actually getting any sleep. So, um, so what I would say is most important if you're working night shift is to do everything with your circadian rhythms to guarantee a decent sleep during the day. Um, the big things surrounding that, and this really is kind of the way it works for me as a daywalker right now. You know, I, I get up in the morning, usually before the sun, I go downstairs and I do my devotions and I I try, I try to do a five minute meditation where I just stare at the white ceiling with these five really bright blue light infused LED cans uh, right above my head. And of course, um, for me, trying to only think about my breathing in the white ceiling um, for five minutes means that I have, you know, 3,700 to 37,000 thoughts and I bring myself back to, Oh no, I'm just supposed to be poking, you know, meditation, whole nother story, but I'm, I'm getting blue light into my eyes at that point, which is hitting that SC, you know, super chiasmatic nucleus and, and, and letting it know that the day has started. And the theory goes that if you get enough blue light into your eyeballs, when you first get up, you basically are setting the clock uh, in your sleep systems for 16 hours, meaning 16 hours later, you should be about ready to go to sleep. And now you need to, you need to pay attention to those light systems and cues throughout the rest of your day. And so in a perfect world at the end of the day, when the sun's down and, and the house is quieting down, you know, I'm going to then want to reverse that. Right. Oh, well, let me back up. The other thing I I do is once that sun pops up uh, above the horizon, um, which is my backyard, I try to get outside and get natural sunlight when it's low level early in the morning. And, you know, as much time as I can be out there, whether even if it's just five minutes uh, or it's seven, five minute episodes over the first couple hours with the dogs out back or whatever. So I'm getting that sunlight as well, because there's a massive uh, difference in how many lux we get out of our LED cans and our ceilings versus how much uh, lux we get out of the sunshine, even on a cloudy day. So, and um, you can even measure that with some free apps uh, and a smartphone. So it's, it's pretty cool to, to look at some of those, uh, those lux lows as you, 
really start geeking out on this kind of stuff. So you want to, you want to get lots of good, rich blue light exposure early in the morning that should set you up for, for, from a light standpoint for 16 hours later, going to bed, you want to reverse that. Um, some people say an hour before bed on the other end, I think an hour minimum is good, but you know, if you can do two or three hours before bed, if you can start getting all of that blue light back out of your, out of your environment, and you can do that a few ways. You can use blue light blocking glasses and a baseball cap so that you're, you know, you're keeping all of that blue light as much as possible from getting into your eyes, or you can spend thousands of dollars on the lighting system of your house where your all the blue light comes out of your house lights later in the day. And of course, all of our screens have blue light like pouring out of them. So you can turn all of that off with some of these different apps uh, in your computer and smartphone and tablets and all of that. So you want to reverse it at the end of the night. And that supposedly, um, according to the super smart people, allows melatonin to be naturally produced. And of course, melatonin is going to help you stay asleep once you get to sleep throughout the night. Um, so, so from a light standpoint, I would say you manage your light based on when you're going to be able to sleep. So if I got up at 4 PM, uh, just a little bit before my night shift was going to begin and I got to do a few things with my family and whatever, at that point of waking up, I would at 4 PM want to get out in that afternoon sun and get that same exposure to my SCN and, 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 and get that 16 hours later, I hopefully will be going to bed clock set. And then on the back end, when it's, when I'm coming off shifts first thing in the morning and the sun's coming up, that's where I would want to minimize my exposure to blue light as much as possible. And, and, and kind of, um, and, and just manage it from a, from a, from a tool set standpoint, even though I'm, I'm not working with the sun, I'm working against it. Um, so that would be one. And I had, you know, I did a lot of night work overseas before I really knew, before I knew what the SCN was and, and, uh, still did some of this stuff, but so that would be the, that'd be the light thing. And then I would also want to try to pay attention to when and how and what I'm eating. Um, like I wouldn't want to have a coffee when I'm coming off shift and then, you know, have like, so have a ton of caffeine in my system. And, you know, if it's a Starbucks with all the, the potions and flavors, you know, a ton of sugar and a ton of caffeine, you know, an hour or two hours before bed. So I'm going to, I'm going to stop all caloric intake uh, and, and even, you know, think, you know, sub substances like caffeine, I want all of that, I want the caffeine to have ended hours and hours before I need to sleep, even if I'm sleeping during the day. And I want, um, I want to have all of my digestion done when I am going to bed. So if I'm going to bed at 9am, you know, I probably want to have had my last bit of food at, you know, like finished at 6am and that gives my body three hours to, to digest. And then, then I've, I've set my, my organs up for being able to, to cool down. And of course, everybody knows, well, actually everybody doesn't know, but we want our, 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 uh, 
our organs need to be able to cool off a little bit to, to really kind of set into good sleep. That's why when, you know, so I've been wearing an aura ring since 2018. And if I, you know, have some beverage, you know, some adult beverages too close to bedtime, or I have a big meal too close to bedtime, you know, it is so obvious uh, in my sleep data as far as heart rate and respiratory rate and, you know, all of the things that that aura tracks as far as sleep goes um it's just real easy to see when you when you prepare for sleep correctly versus incorrectly whether that's light or technology uh you know i i, I can't remember who it was but one of my new favorite terms is um digital sunset you know hey when do we stop you know, looking at social media, when do we stop answering emails um, as far as, you know, in preparation for bed? So that would be the third piece. Like, so once you get your, like your light systems organized for the best sleep, regardless of when you sleep, but especially if you're trying to sleep during the day and you get your eat systems organized to optimize sleep, regardless of whether you're sleeping at night or the day, the third piece would be the technology. And this would be really this wasn't an issue too much when I was um, operating at night and I even had a factory job in the summers where I, I was on third shift and uh, some really funny stories. If, if we ever really want to dive into, to um, the, the craziness of, of, of all of my past, but like the third piece would be the, the digital and technology bucket where, you know, do you want to spend, an hour before you're going to go to sleep at 9am after a full night shift of whatever you're into from a police or, or fire person standpoint, uh, um, looking at social media where you might be seeing stuff where people are flaming your whole profession or news that gets you fired up or, you know, just the way your brain has to deal with that electronic signature in your face, you know, um, and, and getting different things that we don't even understand yet. Uh, spun up or spun down. Um, so, so like a digital sunset would be the, the third thing I would say, uh, again, regardless of whether you're sleeping at night or the day you would want to try to manage. And I would say, you know, if, if the last thing you look at from a digital standpoint is when you're, you know, doing your out briefing for the shift at the, at the office and you could then drive home and for two hours of, of uh, saying hi to your wife and, and, and kids, you know, your, and your dogs or whatever the, whatever your personal situation is, you're, you're uh, doing some, some of that uh, social interaction stuff before you go to bed and you're, you know, maybe you're definitely staying hydrated, but just with water, uh, but you don't touch technology and you don't uh, eat food right before you go to bed and you definitely don't have caffeine and you and you've done everything you can to also minimize blue light those you know two three hours before bedtime um that's that would be the three buckets i would focus on for for night walkers that are trying to sleep during the day but I, it's also the exact same three buckets i would focus on for day walkers who are trying to sleep at night yeah well i appreciate that because i mean it's so important and you know kirk was absolute wealth of information for me and made me realize not only a lot of things that I was doing wrong at home, you know, like I'm mean, a perfect example for, for me was drinking late 
you know, not drinking a huge amount, but drinking right before I went to bed. And I'd always wake up cooking the next day. So it's exactly what you're talking about. Um, but, you know, also when we look at how we work our people, and I think this is another important lens that, you know, people like yourself with your background and some of the other um, special operations, special forces, tier one units report as well. When my crew would get a call, I mean, it might be 3 a.m., we jump straight out of bed. Now we're, you know, inside a building, on top of a building, whatever it is, now having to do, you know, paramedic, you know, algorithms on a child. So very, very high expectations as when it comes to life safety, life preservation, same with law enforcement. But the difference is, and, and, you know, please correct me if I'm wrong, but a lot of the special operations community report being given a lot of tools, having, you know, nutritionists and fitness trainers and, you know, people coming in teaching about sleep and understanding that rest and recovery is important. Then you get the fire service, for example, where they're working 56 hour work weeks with none of that. <laughs> and they're the most overworked, sleep deprived people in the community that are asked to save lives at the drop of a hat. So with, you know, with you not only being in the community, but then working with the preservation of force and family, what kind of support do, you know, your men and women get to make sure that they can perform at the highest level? Is there, is there now an acknowledgement of sleep and, and rest and recovery for performance for injury prevention in your community? So I think so. Um, the, more so than 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 ever before, at least uh, when I so now I left the I retired from the DoD in 2016. Uh, I left the unit, I guess, like physically drove west out of North Carolina in August um, to start a job in Colorado. And then my official retirement date, just based on a, a ton of leave I had saved up and yada, 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 was October 31st, 2016. Um, at that point, we didn't have aura rings, but we had just started buying these things called ready bands. And there were some professional uh, athletic organizations using it. And it gave a score. It basically kind of like, um, like uh, aura gives you a readiness score. And... Um, this kind of gave you a, like a, a, a readiness score. Like you'd have this big watch on and it was just tracking actigraphy and a bunch of other stuff. Um, very early days for that kind of sleep technology, but you would get up and you could push a button on the, on this watch and it would say, you know, your readiness score was whatever, uh, 87 and, and, like many things that you don't think about, the, the secondary effects of having that score for a team of very competitive people became a competition. So, you know, if you were out training somewhere and it was like, you know, whatever, uh, all the single operators were like, hey, it's ladies night. You know, you have guys being like, no way, man. I, I, you know, I had the lowest readiness score today. I'm, I'm going home and going to bed. So like by turning, like having a score um, with the right group of people, it's crazy how that can affect uh, overall readiness. But um, I, I, I like to try to think out loud and, and explain all of this. Um, 
because it's, you know, it's, it's going on six years. So my, I guess one thing is my information is very dated at this point. You know, I've, I've been away from it all for over six years and, and, you know, around six years at this point. And that, you know, that's a lifetime from a technology and a, and a support and system standpoint at this point, I do know, um, because obviously I still have lots of good buddies who are, uh, on active duty that there's a lot of organizations using things like an aura ring um, as part of their readiness and recovery strategies. And again, if you get a score and you can line up next to your buddy and be like, Hey, Oh, look, I got an 87 and you got a 67 on, on readiness. And I got a 89 and you got a 53 on sleep. I'm, you know, I'm kicking your ass. That's a good thing because competition, uh, even if it's on recovery and sleep is, is a technique and a method that should be incorporated where it can. Um, the, so I think at the top end of, of probably any type of organization, whether that's military or, or whatever, you're going to get a population of people who are most interested in utilizing every tool available to get, the best, um, the best of everything done, right? So if, oh, if, if, if I can use this thing or I can learn about this, this uh, subject and become a better sleeper and that's going to make me a better, you know, better at my job and, you know, and, and maybe that's all I'm focused on initially, but then because I'm a better sleeper, I'm also a better husband and I'm a better dad and I'm a better pet owner and I'm a better citizen. You know, you get a lot of bleed over, um, that's huge and important. Um, I think like the, the, so I'm going to shift, like, I don't like to try to explain all of the different buckets. Cause you've got, you know, if you talk about mental health versus physical health or emotional health versus physical health, you know, when I was young and you lined up a, 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 a few of my peers and took a picture of us, we all looked different. You had the, you had the runners, you had the farm boy, super thick, strong head to toe people. You had the, you had the beach muscle guys that had the huge upper bodies and the little tiny toothpick legs. Cause they didn't know anything about squats or cleans or, or, uh, or deadlifts or any of that stuff. Um, and, and that was kind of the norm, you know, physical fitness was a personal responsibility at, at, you know, at a very high level even. And now when you look at, you know, even a, even a, a pack of young Rangers or any, you know, SF team or, or, you know, SEAL organization, you, you, you line a few of them up and you take a picture and they all, you know, they all look like, uh, in a lot of cases, they all look like people uh, who you would see walking out of a CrossFit gym who have been doing, you know, multi-joint uh, functional movement for a long time. Um, so I, th- I think physically, a lot of the military and, and I would assume a lot of first responder types are realizing that, you know, there's a, there's a certain type of fitness that is best for their profession. And, and I think the mental preparedness and mental recovery stuff is the next frontier that we're working on now. And I think, again, the top, 
top tier organizations usually seem to get better at this stuff first, but then it, it trickles down through, through the entire force structure from a military standpoint, a lot of times. And, and, you know, so we can, we can start thinking about, you know, Hey, how do we keep ourselves mentally sharp and how do, you know, what, what are the, what are the same types of things that we know how to do now physically like what systems can we apply to the mental side of, of performance to, 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 to make our people ready for that? Hey, the alarm just went off at 3 a.m. and it's 3.27 and I'm trying to revive a nine-year-old on this, on this, you know, on this fire call or whatever. Um, that, that's the next frontier. And I think, I think we, all we can do is, is let the people who are really focused on this stuff be our, our leaders, whether that's, you know, whether, you know, and a lot of times, you know, that, you know, how it works. It's, it's leading up, right. Some, somebody on the team might even be at the newest man or woman is like, Hey man, why are we not doing this? And, and everybody, uh, everybody blows them off for a while, but if they, if they keep, you know, bringing it up and, and they push because they know it's the right thing to do. And it's something that's missing, you know, all of a sudden, you know, some leader will grab a hold of it and then they'll get credit for it. And, and uh, you know, you can laugh about that later, but who really cares as, as long as, as the information is, is whether it's going up or down, it's getting, it's getting proliferated and, and it's getting supported. Um, and I know I probably didn't even answer your question with all of that, but I, I think there's, uh, I think there's some similarities between first responders and the military in that space. And, and, uh, and I'll shut up and let you fix all of my blunders. With <laughs> no, not at all. But I mean, there, I think that's just it though, is, is, you know, you, you have these, these men more often than not in these special operations communities that are tactical athletes that are required to, to, to be at their absolute peak performance. And it seems like there's been a convergence of the sports science world and nutrition and psychology to support that, to really get the most out of our, our operators. You do not see the same thing in police and fire. And I think the kind of point that I'm trying to make is if, if, if we want someone to, you know, take a shot in the middle of the ocean outside Somalia or, you know, go down and, and capture bin Laden or whatever, that's the same kind of stress and performance that we need from our firefighter climbing stairs in the Grenfell Tower in London or, you know, responding to the Vegas shooting. But if we're going to ask our men and women in uniform to perform at the highest level, yes, there has to be ownership of that officer, that firefighter, that paramedic, but we have to create an environment for them to thrive. And right now, more often than not in the first responder community, our good performers are doing it despite their environment not because of their environment yeah that's tough i mean i i grew up in a place where those you know so as an example um if i chose to take my weekends that i had free and go to a training seminar like that was supported by my organization as long as i brought you know uh, as long as I brought that knowledge back and it was useful, they, they were okay with paying for that. So, you know, CrossFit level one, uh, working with uh, Ripito on basic barbell uh, training, working with, um, uh, 
gosh, who was the Olympic lifting guy? I went to his course, um, rowing, uh, you name it. If, if there was, I was, you know, I was more of the, the gym geek. Um, and so if there was a course I could drive to, um, and, and get, uh, get smarter on, on the, the physical preparedness stuff on Saturday and Sunday, you know, I, I took advantage of that very regularly. Um, and that was, again, like it was supported. So if you have an organization and those like people like maybe similarly wired to me are in a situation, well, yeah, he's in really good shape to, to spite the organization, not because of the, you know, it's not improved by the organization with, with offerings and opportunities. Yeah. That that's foreign to me. Um, and you know, it just kind of goes back to that taking care of your people standpoint, you know, the, you got to have a foundation of, of, of support and, and, in and in first responder jobs and, and then a lot of that DOD, um, roles that's there's a huge physical and, and mental component to that absolutely well i appreciate your kind of perspective on that now speaking of performance let's kind of transition to what you and ryan and a few other elite performers are going to be doing next february so how did you become involved in the human performance project and then i'd love to kind of you know hear about the entire thing through your lens Right on. Okay. So, um, so I met Ryan Birdman a few years ago down in Dallas, I think. And, you know, we've on and off through the years, like ran into each other or communicated about, uh, like, you know, just linking somebody up with somebody kind of, uh, networking thing here and there. Um, one of my best friends, Danny lives down in Dallas and, you know, talk to him all the time. Uh, crash crash in his living room if i'm in dallas uh you know because it's free and he lets me bring my dog so um he's telling me about this thing and he ah, i was talking to birdman and he's doing this he's gonna uh do this this uh expedition and he's gonna do a marathon and a and a and a jump and a and and a sw- like the initial story was swim on all seven continents and he was going to do it in seven days time. So uh, a free fall, a marathon and a swim on every continent. So all seven continents and he was going to get it all done in seven days. And my immediate thought, uh, you know, I'm like, I have, um, I don't have any, uh, any noble thought at this point. I immediately think that sounds really hard. I couldn't do that in my current physical state. And man, how cool would it be to be involved, like to have a challenge like that to have to prepare for and to be able to pull that off. Um, So, you know, again, nothing noble about uh, building a manual that we can share with, with first responders and military and everyone to, to hopefully help, some people who are looking for that, you know, they know they need something uh, and they just don't know where to start. So, so one of the things we want to end up with is a manual that provides resources for our communities. Uh, so, uh, um, but before I get into all of the, 
the pluses now that I know the whole story, my initial thought was that sounds hard. I haven't done anything hard in a long time, man. How cool would it be to be involved with that? Um, so Danny is a connector and I'm sure at some point you'll talk to him in depth and you will, you, you think, you know what I mean when I say connector, but you are, you're, you know, he'll, he'll, he'll blow your socks off with, with, uh, the level of uh, people person that he is. So anyway, he calls me back like 20 minutes later after our conversation ends and he's like, Hey, you're in. I'm like, what are you talking about? He's like, oh, I talked to Birdman. You're in, if you want in, you're in. And, uh, <laughs> so that's how I got started. Um, back in the fall. And since then, it's been building steam. And, you know, so we're, so we're in the middle of March. And I honestly feel like, you know, we've, we are just getting to the point where there's some, you know, the snowball is gaining size. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of slope left, but it's kind of definitely moving on its own. So we're going to do this crazy challenge. And the goal is to do a free fall or, um, or, uh, something similar to a free fall, uh, on all seven continents also run a marathon and also dip in the water. So thank goodness the swim piece is, um, is not like some kind of long distance swim because I definitely joined the army as a weak swimmer. Um, <laughs> and, and, uh, you know, I, I love my seal brothers, mostly making fun of them and, and hanging out with them more so than anything else, but I am, I I do not envy what they get to do in the water that much. So uh, a quick dip in the water, that whole seal, sea, land, air thing. And then we're off to the next continent. Um, It's a huge challenge where you're going to learn a lot through the preparation phase of, of, of this project. Um, We're going to try to do a lot of recording of biomarkers and, and other pieces as we train up for it but the in my mind the big piece is that at the end of these seven days um, regardless of how successful each of us is as an individual we're going to be physically mentally and emotionally crushed from that workload um, you know not only is it a marathon every day which in in and of itself if you train right might not be the most hard thing to do, but recovering on an airplane in between these legs brings a, a huge dimension to the, to the overall project, in my opinion, and, and also helps guarantee that we're going to be really spent by the end. So then we can do biomarkers and collect uh, everything we can possibly collect that's useful at the end of the event and through the event and then go, okay, so, you know, we all are completely exhausted from a system standpoint. Now let's use a very easy to follow, um, not expensive, everything, you know, commercial off the shelf available to anyone who might be a first responder or DOD or whatever, uh, or a civilian for that matter, and, and rebuild ourselves back to, you know, a high level of, of general physical preparedness, you know, mentally strong, emotionally strong, et cetera. Um, so, so capturing all of that, putting that into easy to use systems that, you know, whatever level you're at, you can, you know, just like I do with my clients now as, as a personal performance coach, you know, some, in some cases, you know, we, from a, from a, 
movement standpoint, we might be looking for a few focused walks a week as a start point versus, so, so can we build a manual that would take somebody from a recovery standpoint or a buildup standpoint where they're starting with literally some walks and, and then getting them up to where, you know, they might be a candidate for a special operations team or a first responder team or a firefighting department or recover them if they've been in that field for 20 years and they have all the, all the scars and all the, <laughs> all the issues that a lot of our mates have um, after doing what we do for, you know, 10, 15, 20, in some cases, 30 years. Yeah, well, it's such an exciting venture. And like you said, it's not about the shiny object, which is 7X, even though that's, you know, the kind of, I guess, midpoint, really. You've got the ramp up, you've got 7X, and then you've got all the, the kind of data processing and lessons learned and the docu-series and the creation of the the manual. Um, but as we mentioned before, you've got police departments, fire departments, as well as obviously military Um this is going to be such an invaluable resource and you've collated so many of the, these incredible minds from, you know, physical therapy and neuroscience and nutrition and strength and conditioning. And then you've got these elite, you know, uh, athletes, whether it's, you know, Ironman triathletes or SEALs or, or members of the unit. I don't think, you know, anyone has ever seen anything of this magnitude and certainly, not just for, hey, we did this event and here's the movie now, but to literally be this kind of year-long longitudinal test of, you know, what works in general, what doesn't, and then, you know, disseminate all that information to all the the uniform personnel and beyond for generations to come. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I, I'm, I, uh, I am super excited about what, like who we might reach, um, based on just the, just the, the wow factor of this event, you know, and, and, uh, you know, so the, the, all of the, the marketing and social media stuff, I'm, I'm a complete, um, I wouldn't even rate as a novice in any of that space. So, um, I'm glad there's people like you and, and other members of the team who, who are subject matter experts in, in, in networking and reaching, reaching, um, a mass of, of our, of our population of, of military and first responders, et cetera, because it's huge. I mean, just like the, you know, hopefully what I talked about with you on, um, on prepping, you know, prep, like your whole day prepping for the part of your day where you sleep. Um, like even if, if, if I'm on this podcast and you and I are talking because of HPP seven X, uh, and, and 10 people that listen to your podcast, uh, of, of, uh, of, you know, I don't know how many people you reach, but I assume it's thousands, but even if 10 people, like in the next couple of weeks, figure out how to improve their sleep as, as night shift, you know, night walkers for a police department, you know, somewhere in the Midwest, that, that would be, you know, that's amazing to me. And I, I you know, it just, it fires me up. I, I love the idea of, of, of helping our people in this way and, and doing it in a way where, it, you know, if we do it all right, there, there will be a, a living you know, kind of always updating uh, component to 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 what we can provide 
law enforcement, fire departments, DOD, you know, those still on active duty, those transitioning, those trying to recover who maybe had to leave the service based on an injury, et cetera. Um, it, it, it could be so powerful if, if we get it even, even 50% right. Uh, I'm, I'm pretty stoked. Yeah, I'm incredibly excited as well. Now, I just want to go back to something you just touched on for a second. I know that you were well embedded with, and this is a kind of modality that I found worked so well for me as a firefighter, even though some, you know, naysayers talked about, you know, how bad it was for people, but CrossFit. So I I was introduced to it in, I think it was 06, by one of my fellow firefighters who was actually at a gym then. Um, and was absolutely blown away. I was already an athlete, you know, I was already, you know, in good shape, but that took it to a completely different level and gave me the tools physically and mentally, like the, 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 the pain cave, that horrible place, that red line that you go to on some workouts, you never go on all of them, um, absolutely transitioned over or translated into the fireground. So talk, talk to me about how you found CrossFit and what you saw as far as how that carried over to, to your work in, you know, special operations, special forces. Yeah, man. Um, I'm right there with you. So I think uh, I actually have it in a notebook. So I, I, I can always reference the date. My first CrossFit workout was overseas and, and self uh, was, it didn't involve anybody, but um, you know, me in the gym. And I, I saw like a, I don't know, men's health article on CrossFit or whatever. I was by myself cause I had a broken finger. Um, and I couldn't, I couldn't, uh, I had, a, had to, I had one of those big metal things on my hand for, for a couple of days and, and had to sit out basically. Um, so February, February, 2006, I did, I was like, ah, it says do this. Yeah. What's the big deal? Three pull-ups, six push-ups, nine air squats. I didn't, you know, let's not talk about form. Now I had a mean pull-up already at that point in my life. And obviously I'd done thousands of push-ups at that point in my life. I'd been in the army, um, 15 years. So, um, so I was like, what's the big deal? And I, and I, you know, I thought I was going to die way before the 15 minute timer went off. Um, so I was intrigued. And, and then, you know, what I would say about CrossFit is, and there were other, there were others, you know, camps, if you will, that, that were probably, you know, similarly uh, thought through and, 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 and maybe if CrossFit, CrossFit wasn't there, maybe they would have become whatever, you know, what CrossFit became, but the, Overall, just like all of it, the the whole of CrossFit for me, anyway, in the early two thousands, mid mid aughts, if you will, um, was very useful. Like I, you know, honestly, the first place I really heard about nutrition was my, you know, reading um, reading through the the manuals for the CrossFit Level One cert, where you know they they focused on the zone diet and. And I was, you know, starting to understand how you build macros um, in in the way that Zone builds them for high performance was was kind of like the beginning of my educate education on on eating. And from a movement standpoint, 
I had messed around with squats before, but I didn't have, um, wasn't good at any of that stuff and I wasn't doing them at the time. So, you know, uh, getting into it and liking it and then like realizing, uh, the strength gains that I got on all the normal weightlifting stuff I did, uh, after not doing those normal weightlifting workouts and doing CrossFit was crazy. And the time I spent in my focused workout sessions was crazy because it was way shorter. So I was getting stronger. I was spending less time in the gym. Um, and like you, I loved the pain cave. There were certain operational moments in my life where I was feeling sorry for myself um, because I was trying to, you know, for example, let's just say I was trying to carry maybe a five gallon water can up some ridiculous terrain in some environment where um, we needed to, to get up the hill and back behind the rocks before the sun came up. And, I, you know, and you, you know, you're all boo-boo lipped uh, cause it sucks. And then you, then you have, uh, have a realization you're like, wait a minute, I, I've done, you know, this isn't as hard as this workout or that workout or, or, you know, the things I voluntarily did, blah, blah, blah. So it's kind of funny. You get to laugh at yourself. Um, and, and, uh, and think back about how, well, it wasn't as bad as, you know, that, that one grinder, um, yachty, you know, whatever, whatever the case may be. So I'm with you. I, I found that, um, for me personally, CrossFit was per perfectly designed for that time in my life. And I still, you know, so I, I made this commitment to do 50 MRFs um, from Memorial Day 2021 to 2022. So, and then I wrecked my mountain bike and really jacked up my right arm for a few months um, to where I couldn't do pull-ups. So I had a big pause. So I've got like 11 more MRFs to do before, um, before Memorial Day this year. And, you know, just, just doing push-ups and sit-ups, excuse me, push-ups and pull-ups and, and squats. Um, you know, if, if you only followed CrossFit enough to get five of the foundational workouts into your repertoire and you, you, and you took the time to do those moves well, I mean, I'm, I'm 51 and I, you know, for, for most 51 year olds, my, my squat form is pretty doggone good. And I don't do a ton of weight when I, when I do weighted squats anymore, but I, um, you know, I got good form and I have good range of motion and I have good strength to weight ratio still. And, and when my, you know, my, my 13 year old and nine year olds want to wrestle at the same time, um, it doesn't always immediately put me in the hurt locker. If I, if I see them coming and I, you know, um, I love it. I, I, I would say that I still do CrossFit. I'm still a, uh, current level two coach in fact, but I, I don't do like just what you would consider CrossFit, um, you know, hundred percent, you know, obviously I've got with, uh, with all these marathons we have to run, I'm, I'm, I'm quickly upping my zone two training from a cardio standpoint, uh, quite a bit, but I'm, I'm, my goal for this whole thing is to, is to, to be able to very quickly get back to what I would consider a high level of general physical preparedness after the expedition, um, and, and CrossFit from a historical standpoint and all of the exposure I've had to amazing coaches, whether it's basic barbell moves or rowing, 
or Olympic lifts um, and nutrition, et cetera, all of that kind of set me on a path to, to take better care of myself. And, and, you know, obviously at this point of the podcast, you realize I'll run my mouth on this stuff forever. Um, it has allowed me to help a lot of people, whether I, you know, whether they're stuck in the sauna with me, uh, back in the day when I was at, at, uh, at lifetime fitness or, you know, you name it. Um, the, 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 the overall place that I am in coaching people and helping them improve their, you know, personal performance, um, CrossFit played a huge foundational role in that. Beautiful. Well, yeah, firstly, I think it's so important because you hear so many kind of like negative stories about it, you know, and of course, that's partly because of some really shitty coaching, some giant egos that walk into gyms and then destroy their bodies. The tall socks, lifters and, you know, protein shake mixers, uh, you know, extreme accessorizing that happened, I think, mid CrossFit experience. But what I think is important people to understand is, as you were saying, you can scale it to whatever you want. But I truly believe that that kind of model serves a tactical community very well. Absolutely, you, um, yeah, you nailed it. And and you know, one one clarifying point. Um, it's like there are, you know, there there are the people out there who who like CrossFit is their worldview. It's kind of like have you know having a buddy that's a Navy SEAL. And, and their worldview is, is Navy SEAL, you know, um, I personally have a lot of different tribes that I am a part of, but for, for some people, maybe they didn't, they, they never had that like good community experience. And, and, and with that regard, when you, you know, you look at Harvard studying CrossFit as a, almost a religion, um, or a cult. And I mean, you know, it's unfortunate, but, it, there's probably a lot of people that, that that community of people trying to get better at life, uh, which in, in a lot of cases is, is what a CrossFit box community is, um, is huge. Um, yeah, I, I think, like you said, um, back in the early days when it was like, hey, I'm going to, you know, it, it seemed like every CrossFit box goal, you know, new coaches goal was to put everybody in the hurt locker and, you know, overdose all the people just learning about CrossFit for the first few workouts. Um, I went to a good friend of mine's gym in Dallas a few weeks ago and the entire workout was, it, it, it was something that you'd see Peter Atia doing uh, as part of his weekly routine from like, you know, it, it was basically uh, like a zone four, zone five-ish kind of four minute. It was like four minutes, zone four, zone five on whatever you were on. I was on an assault bike. So like a rogue echo. Um, so four minutes, like trying to maintain a certain level of Watts uh, that I could maintain for that whole four minutes. Then I got off for four minutes. We did that for five rotations after a good warm-up, and that was that was the workout. So CrossFit, you know, the other cool thing about CrossFit is you've got really good, really smart, really well-educated coaches running gyms now, and they have to be, or they'll, you know, their clientele will draw dry up because 
you know, the clients can go two blocks down the road to another CrossFit gym where the programming is better. So, um, you know, if, if you think about CrossFit from where you and I were first exposed to it in 2007 and, and what, you know, the few gyms I still like track and, and, and visit when I'm in certain locations, uh, what they're doing, it's a, it's a totally different thing, but it, it has a common ancestry and it has all of the roots of, of the important pieces of a, of a good movement program. Absolutely. Well, I want to transition to some closing questions, but just before I do, you mentioned about um, being a per, excuse me a personal performance coach now. So I'd love to hear you know about what you're doing with people at the moment, and then where they can find that. Yeah, you bet. So yeah, I was um, I was just calling myself a performance coach, and every time I said that to someone, they'd be like, "Oh, cool, what sport?" And I'd then uh, get all tongue twisted. And, and say something stupid like this, the sport of life or whatever. So anyway, yeah, personal performance coaches is, is um, what I'm, I'm, I'm branding myself as now. And what I do is I, I take clients. And at this point, all of my client base are very successful and, and super busy um, because of all of the success they've found as adults. And I help them kind of rebuild a, a basic human performance program that fits whatever they have going on for, uh, for life at that point. And an, an example of that might be, you know, I have a dentist client and for, you know, 10, 12 hours a day, some days, he's literally gone from oral surgery to oral surgery or whatever he's doing in, in his, in his uh, patient's mouth. So really horrible, position for hours on end throughout a day, you know, can I, can I do what, uh, can I put him in a normal, um, CrossFit five day a week, uh, beginner or intermediate program might look like and, and expect him to be able to do his job perfectly, um, and feel good at the end of the day with, with that level of, of just movement training. No, I can't. So, you know, what are the specifics of my client's life and how can I help them build the best programs around how they eat, how they sleep, how they move, and even how they think from a, from, um, from a mindset standpoint uh, about their personal performance. Um, that's what I do. And I, you know, I kind of, when I, I started this on the side of my corporate job in 2018, because I really missed the coaching aspect of my of my time in the military even though I didn't probably realize it at the time how much coaching was just a part of what you do once you once you become a leader at the different levels in an organization um and my you know I I I started with eat sleep move because those were the three buckets that I had done pretty much everything wrong in at some point in my life and I felt like I was at least a few steps ahead of the general population on fixing myself. And so I could help fix them. So, um, so it was eat, sleep, move. And I rebranded, uh, towards the end of 2021 and I added think. So eat, sleep, move, think, because I can, you know, what I've found is that once I get people dialed in with what works best for them, a lot of times they just, they, for whatever reason, have to always revisit the, the mindset piece on why they're doing what they're doing and, 
And so we spend a lot of time there. And, and honestly, we get into, all, you know, all, all facets of life, whether it's parenting, um, you know, all the different relationships, you know, the work environment. So um, it's really fun because I start working with people based on personal performance. Um, and then it, it kind of turns into life coaching and, and all kinds of, of stuff. And of course, I get to learn with every client um, and improve myself. And, and, and it's, uh, it's, a, it's so far been a job where I can't imagine not ever loving it and not ever wanting to do it. So, you know, I, I, I joke with my wife last year when I was leaving corporate America, I was like, I finally know what I want to be when I grow up. And uh, you can imagine the look I got at that point. Uh, Cause Carly and I've been married for going on a quarter of a century here in a couple of years. And uh, she just kind of, kind of laughed at me like normal. And, and so that's what I'm doing. My company is called first principles performance LLC. I'm probably going to have a decent website finished up here in the next few weeks, but I do have a landing page right now. So any of your listeners, even just, even if somebody wants to shoot the shit on sleep because they, because I didn't speak clearly on, you know, being a night walker and, and how they might um, clean up their ability to sleep during the day. You can reach me on that website. The website is www.fpp.llc. So um, pretty simple to remember, and it's got a little bit of a rhyme to it. It does. Sounds like a Naughty by Nature song. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I think I recognize what you're talking about. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's, that's what I'm doing. It's, it's been amazing. And, you know, uh, leaving corporate America last year and going all in on, on the coaching business it is one of the things that allowed me to say, wow, this, this, uh, this HPP 7X thing sounds really, really hard. I couldn't do it in my current state, but I'd love to try to get ready for it and do it. You know, if I hadn't, obviously I would not be able to to be a part of this. Um, if I was still, you know, banging out, you know, 50, 60 hour a week job. And so, yeah, life, uh, life's lining up pretty good. Beautiful. So, um, for people listening as well, I believe, I know we got a message a while ago. I think the website for the human performance project is going to be American extreme.com. So I will verify that on the uh, intro when I do that as well. But I will put your website and that other website on the uh, the page for this episode. Awesome. So the first of the closing questions that I love to ask, is there a book or are there books that you love to recommend? They can pertain to our discussion today or completely unrelated. Yeah, there's... Um so I, there's three I recommend all the time along the lines of Eat, Sleep, Move. And, and one is Why We Sleep by Matthew Walker. I think, you know, like like anything, you can find people who complain about um, – you can't find anything that somebody won't complain about. And maybe there's a couple places in that book that aren't, you know, 100% spot on. But – Overall, it's a very readable book and you will learn so much about sleep and, and, and all of the contributing factors from a, from a mental stress standpoint, uh, how, you know, food, how all of these, you know, I look at the four buckets as all being interwoven. And if people understood how their eat affects their sleep and move and thinking and how their 
sleep affects their eating and moving and thinking, you know, like if you can think about all of those as a, as a singular system, which is what I try to do and how I try to teach people, um, you'll, you, you get the compounding effect of, of cleaning it all up at once. So from a sleep standpoint, that's my favorite sleep book. Um, again, why we sleep Matthew Walker from a, from an eat standpoint. Um, I am not a keto guy. I think I go in and out of ketosis pretty regularly based on how I operate from a food clock standpoint. And, and I do eat low carb, but the case for keto by Gary Tobbs is a very readable book on all the problems with the standard American diet and, and, uh, and, and just more importantly, um, very cleanly explains a lot of the science around diet and eating that uh, Americans have a hard time taking the time to understand. So I've, that's like a, if I was going to recommend a, a book on improving your nutrition, that would be the one I would recommend at this point. And then from a, from a move standpoint, this one's a little not as focused, but the, the, the book Natural Born Heroes is an amazing book. Oh, where is it? It's right over there somewhere by, um, can't remember the author off the top of my head, but I've, gosh, I've listened to this book like 10 times. Again, Natural Born Heroes. It's a crazy uh, World War II story tied in with uh, a ton of information about performance um, from a from a movement standpoint and just like a historical perspective of what the human body's capable capable of in a more recent era than say you know Thermopylae or something like that uh, that that people who take the time to read it after I've recommended it, find it very useful. So that would be the third book on, um, that I, that I most often recommend. Beautiful. You know, I haven't had that one recommended. I mean, the case for keto, I don't think I've had recommended either, but natural born heroes, I haven't. And I think that's, that's such a great way of delivering a principle or a concept is through storytelling. So I'm looking forward to reading that myself. Yeah, McDougal, I think, uh, is the author, uh, author Christopher McDougal, maybe. Um, I could be totally butchering that, though. But yeah, I think the case for keto, again, it's like, it's like, ignore the title. Uh, you don't have to be um, on the ketogenic diet to really get a lot of bang for your buck out of that book. Brilliant. All right. Well, next question. Is there a movie and or documentary that you love? Um. I uh, I do not watch much TV, but there are some historical movies that I love. And, and, you know, depending on how old your listeners generally are, they'll all they'll probably know them all. One would be The Princess Bride. I, I just for whatever reason um, could watch that movie. Uh, every, you know, I've always been able to watch that movie and enjoy it, I guess is the best way to say it. So Princess Bride, I think, is hilarious and awesome. I love a Christmas story uh, with the Red Rider BB gun and shooting your eye out. And um, from a third purely entertainment standpoint on movies, I love Highlander. The first Highlander movie was um, really cool and, and stuck with me a lot. So yeah, those three, even more than Top Gun, even though I mentioned Top Gun earlier in the night, you know, from the eighties would be my top three entertainment movies from a, 
from a documentary standpoint, I, um, I've watched the last two documentaries I've watched, both were climbing and one um, was about the, you know, both of them were about these two, um, in my opinion, insane climbers who did all of their work basically, you know, without ropes. And um, I can't remember the name of either of them, but I can. Free Solo and the Alpinist? Yeah, that's the two. Yep. Incredible films, both yeah, of them. I knew I knew you would. Uh, you know, you probably actually have had people involved with those stories on your on your show. If I was a betting man, not yet. Um, uh, yeah, well, we'll have to figure that out. Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, and, and you know, I have a question for you. When you have somebody like me who um, who is just stumbling onto your podcast uh, through all of these relation these new relationships, I have I've I've listened to two of your podcasts. I loved both of them. And, you know, my math, that means I've got about 1,200 hours plus of content that I want to try to get through. So do you have a, do you have a recommendation uh, for new listeners on, on how they approach getting through your almost 600 episodes? Um, that is a very good question. So I recommend people just DM me with what they're looking for initially because it's such a diverse spectrum that you know if it's sleep if it's neuroscience if it's you know strength and conditioning i know still to to this day i still kind of you know these people pop in my head so i my goal one day is to maybe categorize them where i make it searchable because that would definitely help but as with this conversation the 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 talks go so you know they're so broad that we're not just talking about strength training or you know endurance athleticism or nutrition it goes all over the place so that's why i haven't yet but i mean honestly i have no problem at all the people like hey i just got on it this is the kind of things i'm looking to explore first text me and and i will let you know some some great episodes to start with awesome that's helpful well speaking of, of guests um is there a person that you would recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders military and associated professions of the world Oh man, um, I have not had a t- uh, chance to go through your whole catalog, so I might say someone who you've already had on. But um, I guess based on your audience, I, I I can't imagine an interview with Kyle Lamb not being um, really fruitful. You know, he's he's a huge supporter of the military, huge supporter of first responders, law enforcement, etc. And, um, and he's, he's just, he's really funny and he's super smart and, um, he has a million amazing stories that, 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 uh, all translate well for our community. That's exactly who I was going to ask you about. Cause I was so impressed by the conversation between the two of you. And when I listen to podcasts, I listen to a lot because I always research the people that come on because I think, you know, that's the thing. If the more you know about it, the better conversation you can create. Um, but you also get exposed to all kinds of podcasts and interview styles. And, you know, so I think after several years now, I know what I think, what I, my own personal consideration is what would be a good interview, you know, what, what kind of middle of road and, and ones that maybe, you know, I, I don't enjoy usually the ones where the host is talking all over the guest. <laughs> but it was, I mean, genuinely a really, really great conversation. And I was thinking, listening to the two of you, 
I would love to get Kyle on as well. So if you're able to make that happen, I would love to bring him on. I will. Uh, I'll see what I can do. The, the cool thing about that podcast, or you know, probably my favorite part is you know Kyle was popping into Colorado for you know whether he was on his way to the airport from a hunt or what I don't remember, but you know, he stayed at my house and we got up in the morning, uh, brewed some coffee and he's like, Hey, let's do a podcast. And it was, you know, sitting at my kitchen table. Um, and, and, you know, I, yeah, here in Colorado. So, um, like you said, very conversational, very fun. Um, and we've been actually, we've been texting back and forth and even got, had a chance to get on a call while he was waiting on a plane last week. So I will, uh, I'll see what I can do and, and, and uh, circle back with you on that one for sure. Brilliant. I appreciate it. All right. Well, then the very last thing to ask you, the last question before we make sure everyone knows where to find you online, what do you do to decompress? Um, so, man, there's so many things. And, you know, again, everything I've, I've learned and tried to incorporate for myself personally and what I try to help my clients build is, is based on, all the things I've done wrong uh, and all the domains of personal performance and health and, and, and whatnot. One of my, um, I'm currently trying to work on a better evening routine, um, like that whole digital sunset thing and being done with work at a certain time and, and, you know, even putting my phone, like going ahead and turning my alarm on for when I need to get up and putting my phone away, you know, hours before actual bedtime and, and things like that. And I definitely have, have some work to do on that um, evening routine setup. Uh, one, like from a decompression standpoint, I've found like actually that now that I know a little bit more about breathing uh, from some of the books I've, I've been able to read, like, um, like the oxygen advantage and I've gone through Wim Hof stuff and even got a, like a first level performance breathing coach certification from XPT that I learned a lot in um, breathing is, is huge. And if I focus on it, it, it's very useful and helping me decompress. But my, my, my favorite tool um, a lot of times it's not necessarily in the, you know, part of the pre-bed ritual. It's more on the front end of the day is, is my sauna. I've got a sauna that, is right, you know, 20 feet from where I'm at in my office now. And that sucker will get up to 200 degrees at, at head level where I'm sitting on the bench and, uh, 25 minutes in that thing at, you know, 180, 190 degrees, um, whether it's after a workout or, you know, just on a recovery day where maybe the hardest thing I've done is, is 10 minutes of rolling and, and, and trigger point work. Um, it is huge. And, and I, you know, again, I call it the free fitness room because all you got to do is go in there and sit and sweat, but I do, I do a little bit of mobility work in there and I find it just helps me clear my brain. You know, it's almost like, as I sweat out the impurities in my body, my brain kind of um, sweats out some of the impurities as well. So that uh, that's a big part of it. And honestly, just, just movement, whether it's walking my dog or, you know, getting a workout in and, uh, in the morning or around lunchtime, but then getting just some more outside time, even if it's just putzing around, you know, walking, walking a half mile up the road, uh, where, where a lot of people, uh, let their dogs play, which I apologize. My dogs are now playing right at my feet. Uh, so you can hear them whining, but 
Um, yeah, I would say, I would say actually learning how to breathe, uh, from, from a sympathetic and parasympathetic standpoint that, that that's worth your time as a human being. Um, if you have the ability to have a sauna in your routine, I use an old school, you know, big 220, uh, like wired in like a dryer, <laughs> um, motored sauna not a, not an infrared but i i understand that a lot of people really like the infrared saunas as well uh, i would say if you have the opportunity to get in a sauna try to figure that out and then just just movement whether that's whether that's getting up from your desk every hour or so to to walk around the floor uh, of your office for five minutes or getting out of your patrol car you know as often as possible to just just change body positions and, and let your organs settle back out and, and, and get in a better functioning position and get your blood flowing through your, uh, through your arms and legs and, and neck and head and everything. Um, uh, all the way up to having a really well-defined and well-organized, you know, cross-discipline fitness program. Um, those would be the three things, breathing, movement, and general sauna. Brilliant. Well, you just mentioned the oxygen advantage. So one episode I can recommend, I had Patrick McCowan on the show, who was the author of that. I had Wim Hof, uh, Brian McKenzie a couple of times. So there's some, there's some breath work episodes you can listen to right off the bat. Sweet. I will check them out. I know all three of those guys, uh, at least their personas. Beautiful. All right. Well, then just to, to kind of round it off, you, you mentioned about the website. Are there any other places online that people can find you, social media, anything like that? No, I, I, I suck at, at social media, um, probably based on career choices where that just wasn't part of what we, we do. Um, I don't know when this episode will air, but my goal is to set up um, to get Instagram up and running so that I, uh, because it's just, you know, It'd be like not having email, right? If I'm trying to be a coach and actually help people and not, not be able to put out a little bit of content that, that someone will find useful on a, on a social media platform. So I haven't gotten my, my I haven't gotten my mind right about um, what having a social media presence like Instagram would be like. Um, so I don't know what it's going to look like, but that's, you know, maybe if, if this, if this episode airs by the end of March or April, I'll, I'll have Instagram up and I'll share that. I'll share that with you as, as it happens in real time. Otherwise just, you know, email me Alex, A L E X at F P P dot L L C again, first principles performance LLC. Um, and I, uh, yeah, I don't get a whole lot of emails cause I, I am, um, I'm, I'm a very small operation and pretty quiet person generally. So, um, so I will, I will get right back to you. Brilliant. Well, Alex, I want to say thank you so much. I mean, we've been talking for two and a half hours, so I am, you know, honored to, to get to hear your story. I'm extremely excited to, to get to be part of the support team as we follow you guys through your crucible at seven X. Um, but it's been an incredible conversation. I'm just truly appreciative of you being so generous of your time today. Hey, James, right back at you, man. It's been a pleasure to get to know you these last few weeks. And uh, I really, um, you yeah, know, have a ton of respect for, um, for what you're doing for the community. It's, it's, uh, there's, a, there's a lot of places in, in my life where, 
you know, you're an example of, of what right looks like and, and, and helping, helping the, 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 the people that made us who we are at this point in our life. So, um, so thank you very much.